0: This podcast was sponsored by Baba Sobers Wealth Management at UBS Financial Services. Baba Sobers Wealth Management works with physicians, medical practices, and hospitals, providing comprehensive wealth management services for individuals and institutions. Visit our website at advisors.ubs.com forward slash Baba Sobers WM. We're members of FINRA and SIPC. FirstNet, built
1: with AT&T is the only nationwide wireless network built with and for emergency responders, including Arizona physicians, nurses, and other critical staff. FirstNet subscribers get a great mobile experience with added security and peace of mind. Visit firstnet.com to learn more. So you know you're in the red light, which is usually secondary to significant trauma because you can't use, the child cannot use safety, they cannot use fight or flight because they're too little. So they automatically go to the uh, collapse response, the freeze response, uh, which is a sense of, I can't, I want to do something, but I can't. And so if you always say that to yourself, you know where you are.
2: Hi, and welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is John McElligand, your host for today's episode. And today, we'll be talking with Dr. James Seymour about trauma-informed care, Dr. Seymour's Senior Clinical Specialist at Sierra Tucson. He joined the organization in 2010. Upon receiving his medical degree from the University of Tennessee and completing his psychiatric residency at the University of Virginia in 1987, Dr. Seymour trained for several years in intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. He was an officer in the U.S. Public Health Service, where he served as mental health director of the Tucson area IHS. For 10 years, he served as the assistant medical director of a residential behavioral health and substance abuse program focused on the healing of mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Seymour is board certified by both the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Seymour, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I
2: appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and I'm glad that we're talking about this topic of trauma-informed medical care. I'm wondering if you could sort of set the stage for listeners by defining, one, what is trauma? What kind of trauma are we talking about? Uh-huh. And what is trauma-informed care? Okay.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I don't get many, many chances to uh, speak to physicians. Most of I'm speaking to therapists, and uh, I'm, I'm excited Uh, The other thing I'm always excited about speaking anywhere is that I see us as all like a big army of healers all around the country trying to help people optimize their quality of life and improve their functioning. And so I always feel like we're all together doing the same thing. So um, in terms of trauma-informed care, first of all, I'd like to give a definition, my definition of uh, what is psychological trauma. Many people define it in different ways, but I define it in two ways. First of all, anything that happens to overcome our capacity to cope and threatens our survival, either physically or psychologically, is psychological trauma. The other thing is, trauma is an ancient Greek word which means wound, and uh, so I think if anything that wounds our hearts, our souls, or our spirits is psychological trauma. So under those broad definitions, everybody experiences psychological trauma at some point in their life, some just much, much more than others. Now, in terms of trauma-informed care, um, the most important aspects of this are uh, reducing shame. So what I always say is the basic concept is trauma-informed care equals shame reduction. Shame reduction equals trauma-informed care. And I say that because the most common uh, emotion that's troublesome and the most deep emotion that we have to deal with is a good sense of shame. And also what I look at is if we look at all our interactions with the patients, it will e- each one will result in either increased shame or decreased shame. That's what happens in all our interactions. So we want to make sure all our interactions are uh, able to decrease the patient's shame. Again, the goal really of trauma-informed care is to optimize the quality of life and increase functioning and shame reduction. Now, when we think of trauma-informed care, there are two main aspects. One is the understanding that many of the psychological uh, difficulties that we see uh, are secondary to uh, psychological or emotional trauma. And uh, this applies to many of the common chronic medical conditions, such as obesity, heart disease, diabetes, uh, etc. So um, understanding that a lot of this comes from trauma is the first part, and the second part of trauma-informed care is how do we interact with the patients to help them improve quality of life and decrease shame. Now, then we might ask, what are the elements of trauma-informed care? Well, the concepts are this: We want a sense of safety for the patient. We know that uh, that comes first before anything else in terms of helping people change their behavior or uh, change the way they go about doing things. We always want to give choice. I actually learned this from my wife who is a preschool teacher, now retired. Uh, She taught me always give the little children a choice between this and this, never tell them exactly what to do. And so they feel some sense of agency. And I realized, oh, that applies to everything I do with my patients as well. Uh, So safety and choice, we want to reduce shame Uh, We take a collaborative approach, and this is with most of our patients. And I think that's healthy, and and probably most primary care physicians do that now. One um, caveat, though, is I find people from other cultures, when I'm not familiar with their culture, sometimes want more direction from me. And so they're the ones I would be more directed with. I don't understand their culture and I don't understand how a collaborative approach would necessarily work. So that's the, uh, one exception to that. We have a respectful approach, always respectful. Uh, there has to be mutual trust. We always start with a positive outlook. We want a pleasant environment. Uh, and many of the previous mental health environments are not very pleasant to go into. And we're very careful about the type of language we use. So basically the elements are safety, Choice, reducing shame, collaborative approach, respectful approach, mutual trust, positive outlook, pleasant environment, and language used.
2: Dr. Seymour, thank you so much. And um, what stood out to me talking about that is, is reducing the shame. Uh, that's that that sense of humiliation that patients are often humiliated by something that may not have been within their control, but they still have that burden of of personal shame. Is that what you're talking about, the humiliation?
1: Oh, yes, humiliation and shame. And um, it's just such a ubiquitous uh, emotion, and it's the deepest one that we have to deal with with our patients. And that is directly linked to chronic low self-esteem, which I think of as chronic uh, unhealthy shame.
2: Okay. Dr. Seymour, what attracted you to this aspect of psychiatry? I understand you went through your psychiatric residency, Um, This was at University of Virginia in in the late 80s. But what brought you over to study trauma and trauma-informed care?
1: Uh, Basically, it was my experience uh, with the Indian Health Service. That opened my eyes to trauma as a a major cause of emotional problems and alcohol. Previously, I really didn't pay much attention to addiction in my patients. And I realized uh, on the uh, reservation where I work, uh, lots of trauma and lots of addiction Uh, and how they were linked together. And that got me interested to really look at and change the way I did practice. And so I've spent most of my uh, studying after that, studying both addiction and how we heal addiction and also uh, trauma, how we go about healing trauma. So that's where my interest came from.
2: Okay, thank you. Yeah, and that's very applicable, uh, not only to Tucson area and IHS where you had been for years, but also um, there's several other IHS areas service areas within Arizona, and so many urban Indians as well uh, from Navajo Nation and many other federally recognized tribe within Arizona. So a lot of the people listening to this may come across individuals. um, You may wanna take that approach. And um, Dr. Seymour, I wanted to ask you, when you did some research into trauma-informed care, do you know where it came from? Where did this idea and this approach come from at the beginning?
1: Well, trauma-informed care is a term that came along later. The first, uh, when we thought beginning of trauma and its effect, uh, using the word trauma was uh, in the 70s with the Vietnam uh, trauma. Now, previous there had been things described um, uh, in World War II, uh, uh, trauma was described as battle fatigue. Uh, in World War I, uh, it was described as a shell shock. Uh, in the Civil War, it was described as neurasthenia. So there was a recognition of uh, trauma experiencing, but they just didn't refer to it as trauma. Now, the term trauma-informed care first uh, began to be used in 2012. And that's the first time we used the term trauma-informed care. But really what pushed it was uh, the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration really pushed this idea uh, because it was starting to be recognized that most of these difficulties were secondary to trauma. Now, how we learned that was the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, which was done in the late 90s. And most of you are probably uh, informed and and already know about the ACE uh, study, but that's why we learned that the chronic illness, both physical illness and mental illness was often due to trauma. Now, what they looked at was uh, 10 factors that were adverse events that may have occurred in childhood. And those factors were physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, and then five other things which included uh, someone, a uh, partner being a violent and homie, the mother or father being violent, uh, a parent who was mentally ill, a parent who was incarcerated, parent who was an uh, alcoholic or a drug addict, and divorce. So what they did is they assigned a score of one for each of those events and a zero if there wasn't reported those events. And what we found out was that if you have a score of four or more on the uh, ACE uh, test, then it's almost invariably that you have significant psychological disorder and a significant physical disorder that does uh, um, shorten your lifespan. Now, the problem is is that uh, trauma-informed care became a fad. Everybody in every treatment program that I know of, or every practice say they're trauma-informed, and most of them are not. They don't really know what trauma-informed care, but it is the buzzword of the time. So uh, you see everybody advertises as trauma-informed care in the psychological field.
2: I wonder if we could delve into the um, physiological effects. And I understand that you view post-trauma symptoms as a natural response to trauma. Uh, you don't approach the psychological symptoms as a disease or disorder. So, could you describe, please, how that happens physiologically? And, for example, are there changes that occur in the nervous system in response to trauma?
1: Yes, there are. And uh, what we look at is that uh, we as human beings have the same uh, threat response as other mammals. And that is when we're under threat physically or psychologically. The first thing we do is to try to find safety by connection with others. We are tribal animals and herd animals. And so what we try to do when there's threat is we try to get with other members of the herd, try to get next to other people who are safe. Now, only when there's that safety is there an ability to really look at uh, your behavior and learn to change your behavior. And I call that threat response the green light on a traffic light. And if that doesn't work, there's no safety, then we end up in the sympathetic activity excessively where we have the fight or flight reaction uh, when it's extreme. And when it's not so extreme, a lot of anxiety, anxiety disorders, and irritability. And that I call the yellow light for caution. Now, when that doesn't work, then we have the last ditch effort, uh, which is a collapse response. Uh, We sometimes refer to it as a freeze response. And in uh, uh, other mammals, it's the last ditch effort to stay alive and uh, doesn't always work. But in human beings, when we get into the uh, uh, red light zone, which is, uh, is a collapse and uh, what we call a freeze response, we have a different symptom. And the symptoms, you know you're in there if you have disconnection and dissociation or the experience of chronic depression. So, you know, you're in the red light, which is usually secondary to significant trauma because you can't use, the child cannot use safety. They cannot use fight or flight because they're too little. So they automatically go to the uh, collapse response, the freeze response, uh, which is a sense of I can't, I want to do something, but I can't. And so if you always say that to yourself, you know where you are. Now, um, what happens is then the children um, become accustomed to using that uh, protection uh, uh, defense. And then it becomes the default mechanism in their lives for any kind of anxiety they have. So that sets them up for uh, chronic problems. So if you really think what's going on, you're either in a safe uh, space, which uh, is what we call a ventral vagal state. Uh, you're either in sympathetic nervous system overactivity or you're in a shutdown, which is a dorsal vagal state. And it's oversimplified. But if you look at those, you can always figure out probably where you are. And each zone has a different way that we need to approach the problem. But one one thing I want to go back and address is it's very, very important uh, to tell people that there's nothing essentially wrong with them. They have lots of symptoms and they have interpersonal difficulties, but there's nothing essentially wrong with them. And this is important, especially for people with developmental trauma. So what we say is trauma is not a disease or a disorder. I don't like the term post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, We use the term post-traumatic stress response because it's a normal response to traumatic circumstances. So how do we end up there? Most of us have what we consider an acute stress response under threat or pressure. Now, the acute stress response for most of us goes away in two or three weeks, For people with post-traumatic stress response or post-traumatic stress disorder, what it is is the person just doesn't bounce back from the acute stress reaction. In other words, it continues. So it's a continuation of an acute stress response, not a disease. And so there's lots of factors we can't get into today as far as which individuals be most likely to not bounce back from an acute stress reaction but that's what it is. It's a prolonged stress reaction that just doesn't heal.
2: Yeah. Dr. Seymour, thank you so much. We'll we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. James Seymour about trauma-informed care.
3: Interested in CME, patient and professional referrals? networking and connecting with other physicians across the valley, want to be highlighted in our Arizona Physician magazine and podcast, or interested in exclusive discounts for your next vacation, at MCMS, we offer all of the above to fit your needs as a physician. Join us now. For more info, check us out at mcmsonline.com or give us a call today at 602-252-2015.
2: Welcome back to the Arizona Physician Podcast, and our guest today is Dr. James Seymour. Dr. Seymour, in the first half of the show, we talked about what is psychological trauma, what is trauma-informed care, sort of where it came from, and then the, um, the physiological responses. I'm wondering now if you could talk with physicians who are listening and give some advice. And let's start with when physicians are, are seeing signs of trauma, or potentially signs of trauma in their patients, um, what should they be looking for? And I want to ask you as well, does this apply to patients of all ages?
1: Well, I'd like to back up just a second because I'll answer that question. But the question I think about is how can I, as a physician, make my practice or organization more trauma-informed? And it's just as important for medical practices as it is psychological practices or psychiatric practices. The number one thing is first understanding that many of the uh, psychological trauma that we see is secondary. I mean, many of the disorders that we see is secondary to psychological trauma and the sense that we need to educate people about that. So I want physicians to be educated. So many of the chronic um, medical illnesses that they see, which often have a strong behavioral component, are probably often secondary to trauma. Uh, The other thing is Uh, Other things we need to do to make our uh, practices more trauma-informed is we want a pleasant setting. Uh, The more pleasant the setting is, uh, people feel better. So the more institutional setting we have, um, people don't feel as comfortable, they don't feel a greater sense of safety. So I'm gonna give some things that are hard to do, but we need to try to do them. And that is as best as possible, start and stop on time. Now, I know this is very hard for primary care physicians, particularly nowadays, But what I recommend is that uh, before getting into uh, issues, that you spend simply two minutes listening to the patient with no attention to anything else, full attention for two minutes, and that will go a long way towards helping the patient settle, have a sense of safety, and then they will open up about their other difficulties. Now, when it comes to trauma, I think one of the things is a primary care physician should use the uh, um, adverse childhood experiences uh, screener for everybody. And that is where you start with trauma because you'll see what people score on the ACE uh, test. You can get it off the internet, it's very easily; simply 10 questions and you have the patient actually fill that out before they come in to see you. So you don't have to take the time to fill that out. And again, you can look and see what kind of trauma they have and then you can, because it's all listed in those uh, uh, ACE questions, And then you can initiate a conversation about any of those that seem to be stronger. Now, how do we know when to refer somebody? If you have a score, if your patient has a score of four or more, it's a good idea to refer for specific mental health treatment. So that's how I'd approach that. And, and, uh, same for any age. Now the age study was done on adults who were looking back on their lives when they were children, but, uh, you can look at those same elements and see if the children that you uh, are working with have those things going on in their lives.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Do you know if there are examples of primary care physicians in the Tucson area near you who have incorporated trauma-informed care into their processes, their intake for, for patients before they see them, or you know, giving you feedback about, yes, I did try these two minutes of focusing entirely on the patient just to hear what they have going on so the fa- patient can open up. And if so, what was the feedback you've received? Has it been positive or has it been difficult for them to incorporate?
1: It's, it's been very positive um, because it, two minutes is not very long. I know in a, a primary care setting, you have a short time for visits, but it really gives, it actually makes the visit more efficient because you really know what the patient is there for there's been studies that have looked at the average time length in an office visit that a patient's able to talk before the physician interrupts. It doesn't look very good. It's not very long. So if you do two minutes, eye contact, full attention, the rest of your uh, evaluation and the rest of your visit is going to be much more efficient.
2: That's great. And I, I like the process of having the ACE questions answered in advance or before you see somebody in the exam room to have the patient answer those questions so you know the score and you can go, you're informed yourself as a clinician going into that conversation about, oh, they scored a four or five. I need to be thinking in the back of my mind, most likely a referral, but we we need to have that conversation first.
1: Exactly. Now there's a couple other things I want to talk about that the primary care physician can make uh, their practice a little bit more trauma-informed. One thing most to know is when you talk with the patients, don't be standing, be sitting down at their level because most of the people who receive trauma have had uh, people in authority mistreat them and abuse them. So if we stand while we're talking, we're unconsciously making them more fearful and putting them to some degree of sympathetic state. Whereas if we're at their level, they're in a better state and a better sense of safety with us. So it sounds like a little thing, but it's really not. The other thing is, What we need to do is we have a lot of behavioral issues that we have to deal with, with obesity, uh, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease. And what I want to go back to is education theory uh, basically says you want to start with the positive and really congratulate the patient with any minor movement in the right direction. And this is what we do for dog training. We don't give them the negative thing. If they're moving in the right direction, we give them the treat. So we want to do the same thing for the patient. So if a patient comes in and says, well, um, I took my medication um, maybe half the time, we say, fantastic, you took it half the time. That's better than what you've been doing before. How did you manage that? And then what we would say is, uh, are you interested in trying further than that? And so let's make a plan for how you can increase from uh, half the time to maybe all the time. And right there, your patient is with you because you're not chiding them. You're, uh, you're using the positive approach, congratulating for whatever they do. Now, psychiatrists, we get a lot of the people who make very little progress. We really congratulate that. So if somebody says, well, I tried my medication once, uh, and then I put it aside, um, congratulate them for the one time they tried them. Med- I'm oh, good. You tried the medication. Yeah. Now, what would to do now? Let's see what we can do, uh, and I always look in terms of what are the obstacles to doing more? Because I find if we remove the obstacles and we know what they are, then we can help. One of the common obstacles that I found in my outpatient psychiatric practice is patients couldn't afford the medication. And a lot of times we give medications from samples that we get from drug reps. And those are newer medications. And so we give them the samples and then it comes time to buy those medications they, they can't afford them. So always look in terms of well, what obstacles do you have to, to losing weight or what obstacles you have to reducing your smoking. Um, now, the other thing I wanna emphasize is that primary care physicians are therapists whether they know it or not. And the reason that is is because most of the problems are seen are chronic illness with behavioral component. So what do we try to do? Physicians talk their patients in order to try to change behavior. What do therapists and psychiatrists do? We talk to the patients in order to help them change their behavior. So all primary care physicians are psychotherapists to some degree. So the same principles that apply to psychotherapy apply to uh, helping someone change their behavior. What we've learned is that the outcomes in any kind of psychotherapy depend primarily on nonspecific factors. And so, again, I say physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs are all psychotherapists. And what the most important factor is the therapeutic alliance, so that the more you have a better alliance for the patient, the more they're likely to do what you want them to do. So to make that uh, therapeutic alliance, we want to always have a positive regard for the patient, a joint expectation that we'll get better. And the last thing is, which we don't do very much, is feedback from the patient. Now, we have a lot of people that go to uh, non-allopathic physicians because often they get positive regard expectation that we will get better. And so what you wanna do is consider this at the end of your uh, meeting with the patient, just uh, ask them a question about, well, what was this meeting like for you? Just a very non-specific question. And that offers the chance for them to give any feedback if they want to or not. And it could be positive or negative feedback. But what's shown is providers of psychotherapy, which means providers of medicine do better if they get a little bit of feedback the so-called master therapists or master physicians really learn by getting uh, patient feedback.
2: Dr. Seymour, thank you. It's very helpful to have um, some of those short open-ended questions and just to have active listening with your patients.
1: There's a a psychologist from the seventies, Ron Kurtz, and uh, he has my favorite quote. He says, my first inclination when I meet with a patient is to find something in them to love uh, the heroic And I think if we approach our medical patients the same way, we have to find something to admire them and appreciate them. I tell therapists that if you can't admire or appreciate or see the hero in your patients, send them to somebody else. But we can always look at that thing and we start with that. And I think most of our patients we can see where they actually are heroes and have uh, tried even though they're in really bad shape and, and don't really do well with their behavioral issues with the chronic illness. So, and when I say find something in to uh, love, I mean, treat them the same way we want it to be treated ourselves, just basically the golden rule. Um, but they will know when you're finding the positive in them and they will more likely follow your directions in terms of quitting smoking or reduction in drinking or taking the medications more compliantly or that sort of thing. If we know what those positive things are, it'll be conveyed unconsciously to the patient.
2: That's, that's a great approach. I love the golden rule, and I, I sure hope that more people follow it. I'm wondering if we could close this conversation today about responding to mistakes. Uh, they happen. Clinicians make therapeutic mistakes. So when that occurs, how would you say a physician should repair the relationship with a patient if they've caused you know, un, unintentional shame or anger for that patient?
1: It, it's very simple. You just simply apologize and say, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't intend that, but happened. And I'm very sorry. What we don't want to do, and I used to do, was we want to back up and explain why we did that. You know, I'm sorry, but, and that doesn't work. It's just basically, I'm sorry. And I've had uh, patients tell me before that they kind of, uh, they break down and cry when you just say, I'm sorry, because they say things like, no one in my life has ever apologized for what they did to me. So uh, a simple apology from a physician without explanation goes a long way. And most people will take that in and it actually strengthens the therapeutic alliance. So it's not that hard to to, uh, repair the relationship. If we know we made a mistake, just say, you know, I'm sorry. Just matter of
2: factly. Dr. James Seymour uh, of the CR Tucson. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing all of your expertise about trauma-informed care. If people wanna reach out to you, what's the best way for people to connect with you?
1: To connect with me, which is my uh, email, which is uh, james.seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R, at Sierra Tucson. Dot com. And I welcome anybody who wants to contact me about anything they want to know more about or they agree or they disagree with what I've said. I just like to talk back and forth with physicians and I'm so happy that you guys came and were able to spend some time uh, listening today.
2: Dr. Seymour, I wish you the best. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Yes.
3: This production is brought to you by Maricopa County Medical Society. MCMS is increasing value for physicians throughout the valley. For more info, check out mcmsonline.com or simply give us a call at 602-252-2015. Helping physicians be the best they can be.
0: Does your financial advisor help you pursue what matters most? With so much at stake when it comes to protecting everything you've worked so hard to achieve, it never hurts to get a second opinion about your financial future. At BABA Sobers Wealth Management at UBS Financial Services, our approach starts by understanding your life and what you want to accomplish. Then we work together to create a framework designed to give you the confidence to do what matters most, no matter what the markets are doing. We want to help ensure you have all you need for today, tomorrow, and for generations to come. For more information about BABA Sobers Wealth Management, Visit our website at advisors.ubs.com forward slash Baba Sobers WM. We're members of FINRA and SIPC.